0: Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. From the high center studios of Messiah College, the official college of the nineteen percent. Here in Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. Now, here's your host, author, and we're going to talk about this more in a minute, and award winning historian, John Fia.
1: Thank you, Drew, and welcome to this special episode of the Wave Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a special summer episode. And, uh, Drew, on this one, um, you know, I guess I have to be a little self-promoting here. This is a special episode devoted to my book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. Uh, when we drop this podcast, it, uh, the book will be out. It's scheduled to be released on June 28th. There's going to be a big party for it at the Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg on June 30th. And, uh... We'll see how this goes. This is going to be a unique episode, Drew.
0: Well, longtime listeners of the podcast will probably have gotten, will be familiar with a few of the the themes of the book. You've been giving that's right. You've been giving listeners a little taste of your thinking and some of the things you've been working on when when applicable in different episodes. So we thought it would be a, a great opportunity to share what you've been working on for the last few for the last year right you yeah, know I mean this yeah. has become a a pretty big deal i i I see your name popping up in op-eds and across the internet and in interesting places so i'm I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, uh, how much of an impact this book makes especially because I, I think it it represents a uh, a really important voice you know from both about evangelicalism but also from evangelicalism so
1: yeah, I mean it's it's going to be a, you know a pretty whirlwind experience. You know, I started writing the book last September, handed it into the press January first, two thousand eighteen. Comes out as I said in June. We're going to do some publicity through most of the summer and fall promotion and tours, touring and speaking through two thousand eighteen. Um, you know, Drew, I'm just I'm just hoping I I come out of this whole thing uh, in one piece. <laughs> right? This is such a controversial subject.
0: Well, and we 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 know that the the, the pundits that you're
1: pointing to are are known for their subtlety. So <laughs> that's right. And so we're going to do something a little different. Drew is actually going to interview me in this episode. But before we get to that, Drew, let's do a little housekeeping, or as they say, let's pay some bills right? Yeah. with some announcements about how you can support our work here as we move into what we hope will be season season five of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast.
0: Yeah, and this is actually a really important point that needs to be made, and you've been making it a lot on, on Twitter and, and on the blog that, you know, some... We're we're going through a bit of a transition going into season five. We That's love right. what we're doing. Um, we have some wonderful, generous donors already in place. We're hoping to be bringing in some more advertising money moving forward in the with the um, the the brand new um, with the brand new recorded history podcast network, but you know, we still have bills to pay and, 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 and we do need some more help if we want to keep the lights on, so to speak. So uh, we do need, of course, to say thank you to those who have given generously and continue to give generously. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many, many, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. So if you want to join that illustrious name of of gold donors, just head over to thewayofimprovement.com. Click on support. There'll be plenty of information there about the Patreon network, which is a, a platform for donating to projects like ours. Many of the people, most of the people who have given money have done so as monthly pledges. But if you do want to just give a flat amount one time, you know there are ways to do that as well. We are still giving out all those goodies, coffee mugs free signed books
1: they might and be believe me will now be added after June 30th exactly. uh, 2018 believe me will now be an option so for, is, for new uh, for new patrons so this is a great chance to jump on
0: board and and of course we try to keep our donors give them some special access whether that be to bonus episodes I send out surveys looking for for input on what you know they might our donors might think would make that uh, the podcast better Additionally, if you want to help spread the word, we continue to grow our social media presence. Of course, John here has quite the Twitter following him already, but we do have our own account at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. So share an episode. Yeah, or follow
1: us, follow us to find out what's
0: going on. Either way, it's a great way to, to get the word out and to grow our listenership which, of course, will make it easier for us. The the larger the listenership, the easier it is for us to actually continue to make the podcast.
1: As always, we appreciate all of your reviews and and kind comments about the podcast. Believe me, we take notice of them. Believe me, did you catch (laughs) that? We take notice of everything. And again, help us to get to season five. We really could use your support.
0: Well, today's guest needs no introduction. Of course, he is the host of the show, author of many, many award-winning books, The Way of Improvement Leads Home, the namesake of the podcast, Why Study History, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation, and his most recent book, The Bible Cause. And we're also anxiously awaiting his newest book out June 28th with Erdman's Publishing, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Trump. Here he is, author and
1: award-winning historian. John Fia. Thanks, Drew. Good to be on the show. <laughs> um, no, this is kind of strange because usually I'm the one asking the questions right? here. But uh, long-time but
0: listener, first-time guest. That's right? right. This should
1: be fun. This should be fun, right? First-time, long-time. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Well, of course, this is going to be a little bit silly because you know you're obviously on the show most days, but we do want to give our listeners an opportunity to hear some of the some of the the more salient points of of, of what you're, the argument
1: you're trying to make with your new book. And I think Drew, it's important for you to sharpen some of your interviewing skills right there you, know, you go because, there you go you know, in case you have to inherit this podcast at some point i i i have to publish a few more books before we get to that you'll be fine <laughs> <laughs>
0: anyway so your book believe me it's just coming out there have already been several books about trump and evangelicals of course some of them written by pro-trump evangelicals mm-hmm. some written by those outside of of the evangelical faith why did you decide to write one
1: yeah, well, a lot of this, a lot of this comes from just my own uh, background, my own religious background as an as an evangelical Christian, um, but also as a historian. So I think it's the blending of those two things. Um, you know, I talk about this in the introduction to the book. There was this moment, uh, the Sunday after the election, once we began to learn about the kind of uh, people who voted for Trump, the kind of Trump profile, if you, Trump voter profile. And we learned that 81% of American evangelicals voted uh, for Donald Trump. Uh, I personally, as an evangelical Christian, found this man to be somewhat reprehensible, uh, You know, uh, immoral, um, lacking in the kind of character necessary, not necessarily to be a Christian, but even lacking the sort of Republican character necessary to be um, a president of the United States. Uh what really troubled me though was when I heard that 81% voted for Trump and then here I am Sunday morning uh what, what would that have been like the 20th or the 21st uh November 16th was the election Sunday morning I'm sort of sitting in my evangelical church uh, and it's a very large church uh you know some might even want to call it a mega church um it's not super super huge but but it's large and I'm sort of standing there singing looking around at everybody kind of lifting their bo- their voices in song and in worship, and thinking that eight out of every ten people, if the statistics are right, voted for this man for president of the United States, and it was kind of very disturbing. It forced me to kind of rethink, uh, you know, my ident- uh, identification with evangelicalism. Uh, on my blog, I immediately, or maybe I tweeted this, I said, you know, if this is evangelicalism, I'm out, right? And uh, that caught on. There was actually a piece in The Atlantic that quoted me as a kind of evangelical who, who is upset with uh, evangelicalism. So, you know, I had been blogging a lot all through the campaign about the way evangelicals Uh, Had jumped on the Trump wagon, people like Robert Jeffress and Jerry Falwell Jr., and so forth. So, a lot of the material for the book was already there. Um, You know, I kind of sat and sat back and watched what happened in those first six, seven, eight months of the Trump administration. Maybe he would change, maybe there were, you know, And instead things to me, at least from a character point of view, as well as a policy point of view. So this for me is not just about, you know, I agree, you know, there's some evangelicals who kind of agree with everything Trump's doing policy wise, but they say, well, we just don't like him as a person of, of immoral character. So that's why we're anti-Trump. Uh, I am very much anti-Trump in terms of character, but also in terms of at least most of his policies, too. I think that's an important distinction to make. So I thought he may change. He didn't change. And in September uh, of 2017, I actually approached some publishers about the book. Uh, we worked it out with Erdman's Publishing um, to, to publish it, because I really want this book to get into the hands of both um you know, uh, the kind of uh, secular political world, but also the Christian political world. I think my book is very, very different from a lot of the others. There's a been a lot of kind of insider takes on this. The CBN, Christian Broadcasting Network journalist David Brody, wrote a book about the faith of Donald Trump, which is very celebratory. The editor of a very, very large and influential charismatic magazine called Charisma wrote a book called God and Donald Trump, which is just blatantly pro-Trump. There had not been a kind of evangelical, a representative of the so-called 19% who did not vote for Trump, who had written anything uh, about the subject. Moreover, as a historian, I wanted to try to provide some kind of historical context, both short-term and long-term for why evangelicals would have flocked to a man, uh, you know, who's been, you know, multiple divorces, adultery, um, you know, made all these disparaging remarks about women, the Access Hollywood tape, you know, forget about policy for a second, you know, why would evangelicals and what is there historically about evangelicals who would support this man, um, for you know, for the for the sort of lack of Christian character that he displays, so so I think that's where my book comes in. Uh, it's it's certainly critical. I don't pretend to write with an even hand on this book. The first book I've ever written like that. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's also I think I'm I, I think I try to be as fair as possible as well to the Trump to the Trump supporters within the evangelical community.
0: So you, you uh, if I can follow up on that, um, yeah, quickly, you, and you kind of hinted at this a little bit in your in your answer there, but it, is this book only possible, or are you only able to write the book the way you did because you also yourself identify as an evangelical, or is this is this more an extension of of your um, uh, wealth of of knowledge and, and history of research yeah. into uh, yeah. American religious history? That's
1: a great question. I'd like to think it's both. Um, you know, certainly the way we're marketing this book uh, and the angle that I'm taking is that I am an insider, at least an insider in terms of American evangelicalism in the 21st century. I identify as an evangelical. I've even come to the point uh, since those early days uh, of after the election of still willing to claim that title. I'm I'm actually willing to fight for the term evangelicalism. So I think. The fact that I'm an evangelical, at least this is what my publisher tells me, uh, gives me a certain degree of authority uh, to speak on this front. The fact that I'm a historian, though, I think, uh, and, and someone who's spent some time studying the evangelical tradition in America, uh, you know, I think it also allows me to offer a long view, uh, a depth uh, to, to thinking about the way evangelicals have behaved in the past and Uh, and to find some sort of precedent uh, for why we really shouldn't be surprised when we really think about it, why 81% of evangelicals would have backed Trump. So I think there's a little bit of both here. Uh, I certainly speak as an evangelical. I also speak as a historian. I think if you're not an evangelical, I do hope that this book would be useful uh, to share with, you know, your friends who are interested in politics whoever they might be students or whatever uh, simply because it offers a kind of historical analysis a sort of long view of the history of American evangelicalism and specifically American uh, evangelicals political engagement uh, that a long view of that that um you know might be helpful for understanding just you know, why 81% voted for this guy just kind of as a historical phenomenon or as a social or political or religious phenomenon.
0: All right, well, let's get to the meat of the book. Let's get to to kind of the argument you were trying to make. Um, your narrative centers around three major themes in, in American evangelicalism, and maybe this is a good time to point out that Oftentimes we need to be specific that this is white American evangelicalism, that there is a different strand of evangelicalism that extends, uh, um, you know, has a long history itself uh, that that is not white. Right. Um, And so this, you know, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's
1: white. It's 81 percent. The 81 percent I should clear up are white evangelicals. And largely I'm thinking that's going to be the the primary audience, at least for for this book. So you pick up on three major themes of this particular American white
0: evangelicalism: fear, power, and nostalgia. Let's talk about these. Why
1: are evangelicals, first of all so afraid? Well, evangelicals have been afraid for a long, long, long time, if you trace this back. Uh, in the in the most immediate sense, right? I think the evangelical support for Donald Trump is really kind of based on two more immediate fears that have developed over the last Say eight to ten years, um, and they're almost all associated with the Obama, with Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Um, Barack Obama's administration, uh, you know, made some really, really rapid uh, social changes in our culture that made evangelicals, conservative white evangelicals, very fearful of the direction that their country is moving. Uh, there's been some really recent. There's some sociological studies that have confirmed a lot of what I have been saying for a long time, but a bunch of uh, young sociologists, uh, Andrew Whitehead is one of them at Clemson, uh, they've just come out with a study that suggests more than any other issue, race, abortion, um, uh, uh, immigration, whatever, the most important issue driving the 81% of white Trump voters, evangelical Trump voters is the idea that America, uh, was founded as, and continues to be a Christian nation. And that history must be defended and protected the Christian identity of America. Um, and then all of the issues related to, uh, race, uh, immigration, Muslims, and so forth kind of fall under that larger category. The way Americans have always understood their nation as Christian is as a very white Protestant uh, nation. So, you know, uh, desegregation, for example, would have posed a threat uh, to that white Protestant nation. Uh, The arrival of immigrants, say, after the 1965 Immigration Act, the Hart-Celler Act, would pose a threat to that homogeneous protestant nation so i think what barack obama in many ways represents not only is he a man of mixed race uh you know he's he's um very progressive in his ideals he's a man who is a person of religious faith but not the right religious faith uh for evangelical protestants uh, and he moves, especially on gay marriage and issues of religious liberty as conservative evangelicals would define religious liberty, which is a very narrow way of defining it. Um, Obama, uh, Obama, you know, at the beginning of his eight year term, Barack Obama is still defending and enforcing, uh, the defense of marriage act, right? That the idea that marriage is, is between a man and a woman, uh, Within five or six years, he has stopped enforcing that and has actually changed his position uh, on gay marriage. And then, of course, you have Obergefell case, which then by the end of his presidency has now legalized gay marriage. Uh, If you believe that marriage between a man and a woman is a bedrock view that holds your Christian nation together and you have a president who is chipping away at that, we're actually just destroying that idea. Um, Again, this is not a a statement whether or not he was right or wrong to do that. I'm just trying to get inside the head of one of the 81%. Uh, This is a major, major social and cultural change happening, and it happens quickly. Uh, And when these changes happen, especially when they happen in a very quick way like this, uh, it produces fear. And then, you know, you have, so you have this Trump character who doesn't, you know, uphold really much of anything related to what evangelicals hold dear, except his policy positions. And we can debate whether he even believes in any of those policy positions, uh, because he certainly changed his mind on a lot of them over the years, especially abortion. But you have him going up against Hillary Clinton, who represents everything uh, that Barack Obama represented. And it's just the continuation of Obama's legacy. And then you add the Bill Clinton scandal in, in the 1990s, 1998, Monica Lewinsky and so forth. Um, you know, this is, you know, you I hear this over and over again when I talk to people, right? You know, they say, we don't like Trump either, but what was our choice? What was our option? So again, we could parse that and critique that any way we want, and I think I do that in the book, but from a purely historical point of view, the, the fear of Hillary uh, as a continuation of Obama. But then real quick, um, I also have a chapter in the book called A Short History of Evangelical Fear, and I trace this all the way back actually to the Puritans and the Salem Witch Trials, uh, through the fears of Thomas Jefferson as a, as a, as a deist president in the, in eight, the election of 1800 uh, and the Jeffersonian presidents to follow, the fear of slave rebellions is what causes white evangelicals in the South to kind of construct this pro-slavery position. Uh, the fear of fundamentalists at the, in the late 19th and early 20th century that their Christian nation is falling apart. Uh, the fear of Catholic immigrants in the early 19th century, all threatening this kind of Christian nation that white Protestant evangelicals are hoping to construct. So what you what you see then is whenever there is a major cultural shift, a cultural, demographic, religious shift to the country... Not only are evangelicals kind of fearful of this, but they are often at the forefront, almost always at the forefront of the bulwark against uh, these kinds of changes. So this is a long pattern. now i'm not I'm not saying, you know, some of my critics, uh, my fellow evangelicals will say, you, you know, all you have to say is bad things about evangelicals. And you know something, I, I, I'm I an evangelical myself, I think evangelicalism is a good thing, they've done good things in the world, that could be another book, right? But I think Trump draws upon those darker moments in evangelicalism, uh, very rarely if ever does he appeal to the times when evangelicals are at the forefront of things like social justice or abolitionism and so forth, it's always those darker moments. He appeals to the worst sides of, of evangelical history as it developed over the last 250 years. So they're afraid. Yeah. Fear is huge. And what I bring up in the book is, you know, if you read your Bible, right. And evangelicals take the Bible very seriously. Um, you know I love the quote by the poet and or the, the novelist and essayist Marilyn Robinson. You know fear is not a Christian habit of mind, right? I mean fear, you know, fear is not something that is a Christian virtue, right? Uh, certainly, fear is a product, I would argue, of the fall of sinfulness, of the brokenness of humankind. But fear is not a place where any Christian, I don't care if they're even evangelical, Catholic, mainline, Protestant, whatever, Eastern Orthodox. It's not a place where any Christian should dwell for very long. And if you do dwell in fear for very long, you're in a really, really bad place in terms of your faith. Uh, I think you could make a pretty good case, Drew, for that uh, from reading the Bible.
0: So. Let's jump next to your to your to your second theme, and, and this centers around a, a term that you've coined that has gotten some traction yeah. uh, across, uh, you know, uh, the the world of journalism. I'm seeing it pop up in lots of different places. Who are uh, the people you term court evangelicals, and why do they want to be so close to power?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the second big problem, right? The problem of power. I think I think you sort of constructing this issue of power over the long haul, over history, right? Evangelicals have never, never really had to kind of uh, appeal to uh, power because they've always been in power, right? There's never been a time until recently that evangelicals have not had power in our culture, especially white evangelicals. Um, it's really not until the late 70s and 1980s with the emergence of the moral majority, Jerry Falwell, the emergence of the Christian right, uh, that evangelicals now have to pursue political power uh, cozy up to presidents and senators and congressmen and the Supreme Court and all these kinds of things because again this goes back to fear they're worried that their Christian nation is falling apart and they need power uh, in government to to order in order to reclaim it or restore it uh, and those are their terms, reclaim and restore, because I think, as I argued in my book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? You could make a pretty good argument that there was nothing there in the first place to reclaim or restore, but that's a whole, we could go off on that for a while. So you see with Trump these evangelical leaders, quote unquote, evangelical leaders, people again, let's name names. Uh, Robert Jeffress, the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas. Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of Liberty University. Paula White, a very popular prosperity gospel preacher. Um, Richard Land, a former leader of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, You know, there's a host of them. Some of them are left over from the Falwell days, people like Ralph Reed and Gary Bauer and these kinds of people. Um, Johnny Moore, a young 32 year old. uh, PR man who used to work for Jerry Falwell senior uh, when he was in his early 20s uh, he, he, he claims this is this is funny he claims to be a modern day Dietrich Bonhoeffer you know which we could again have an entire discussion mm-hmm. about that people like Eric Metaxas right the the Bonhoeffer biographer you know all of these um, Christian leaders have not only come out in uh, support of Trump and voted for Trump, uh, but they now uh, tend to frequent, if Trump is the king, right, the court. Uh, and I, this idea of court evangelicals really comes from the kind of courtiers of the Renaissance era courts. Uh, you know, those who who come to the king's court and flatter the king, never speak truth to the king unless it's to their benefit. Never challenge the king, never morally critique the king. And in certain circles, many of these courtiers were actually clergy, right who who uh, you know, were called out by their fellow clergy for being um compromisers and so forth. So what's fascinating is these court evangelicals, because they need to get so close to power, thus become incapable uh, of calling Donald Trump out for his many, many many, many sins. And power it offers incredible uh, temptations to one who's serious about living a kind of Christian life. Uh, ultimately, as I see it, the Christian life is not about the pursuit of worldly power, but the Christian life is about um, giving up power. You know, we worship a a God who sent His Son to die on the cross. You know, to relinquish power, sacrificial love, right? Not power. So, um, I think whenever you have evangelical Christians or really any Christians for that matter, uh, kind of trying to accomplish some type of a cultural, uh, goal to make America a Christian nation, if you will, by pursuing power, that is problematic for, uh, the witness of the Christian faith in the world. And, and that's what we're seeing, uh. You know, most people now are starting to uh, uh, abandon the term evangelical simply because they're embarrassed by these court evangelicals and their close association with, with Donald Trump. And I think this hurts. As an evangelical, I care about the witness of the gospel in the world, right? The message of the gospel. Uh, and it's just been weakened because of that, uh, because of what these, these Christian leaders are doing.
0: Right. And, and and there's a kind of a deep historical irony in that in insofar as evangelicals in the in the early Republican period were some of the most vocal uh, uh proponents of disestablishment, right? Yeah. Because yeah. because my people the episcopalians right right? we were too close to power we were the ones who who if there was a state religion were most likely to be the state religion and evangelicals were scared of that and so it it is an interesting what um, blows me
1: away that a lot of these court evangelicals are baptists right i mean you go to colonial virginia uh these were the people who were being brutally persecuted by your people right right, (laughs) the anglicans you know they're being you know physically uh uh persecuted, um, you know, Baptists have always been, you know, somebody on my Twitter feed the other day wrote, uh, you know, um, People don't listen to me because they call me a renegade Baptist. I was like, "Renegade Baptist? That's that's a that's a redundant, mm-hmm. right? You know, Baptists have never been empowered. In fact, they've always championed the separation of church and state. So it's it's just very ironic historically. You're right, Drew. Yeah. Well, and and,
0: and you belong to an evangelical free church. That free right. literally means free from the state
1: religion. In this yeah. case, the yeah. the Sweden,
0: right? I mean, yeah. the, the state yeah. religion of Sweden.
1: I've actually been encouraged by my church. Um, you know, we do have Trump supporters and my estimation that eight out of 10 voted for Trump, that may be right or wrong. Uh, I don't know. I taught a four week Sunday school class on Christianity and politics. Trump rarely came up in the discussion, but he was pretty much present in everyone's mind every second of every, of, of every class without mentioning his name. And, and, uh, you know, these evangelicals, uh, they're much more nuanced. I think they're, they're concerned. They're, you know, there's a strong anti Trump and this might be unique to my church, because I know if you go to some other evangelical churches here in central Pennsylvania, they're very much bastions of Trump. So I've been I've been actually pleased with the way the members of the Evangelical Free Church, my I guess you could call it my denomination, um, you know, has has been uh, somewhat critical of Trump. Even people who voted for them, I think, are, you know, a little more nuanced than simply, you know. Someone like Robert Jeffress, who backed Donald Trump from the moment he came down the escalator. That stuff I don't understand. I can at least get my—I disagree, but I can at least get my head around the evangelical who says, I just can't vote for Hillary, right? But it's many of these guys like Falwell and and Jeffress and Paula White and others— They backed Trump when there was still people like Ted Cruz and Ben Carson and John Kasich, you know, these classic Christian right candidates still in the GOP primary and Rubio. um, You know, that that I can't I can't get my head around. All
0: right. Well, let's get to this last theme. Nostalgia. You spent an entire chapter deconstructing Trump's famous phrase, make America great again. How does this phrase relate to the evangelical
1: propensity to engage in nostalgia? Evangelicals love nostalgia. And when they talk about their nostalgia they're again, they're back to this theme, right? America was founded as a Christian nation. Somewhere along the way, it's gone astray. Uh, we need to get back to, uh, and reclaim America as a Christian nation, uh, They privilege nostalgia over good history because anyone who does, uh, you know, anyone who does any kind of responsible history about the founding, uh, it becomes very, very difficult to make an argument that the founding fathers wanted to create some kind of a Christian, Christian nation. Now, granted, uh, in the early 19th century, I mean, one of the things about the separation of church and state that you mentioned before drew was that, um, The separation of church and state actually, you know, put the Anglicans, now Episcopalians, on the ropes, right? They no longer had this state support, so they had to compete with uh, the Baptists and the Methodists and so forth. Um, And rather than like what Thomas Jefferson predicted, that everyone would be a Unitarian by like 1850 or whatever he said, uh, evangelicalism flourishes in the second great awakening to the point where if there ever is a time in american uh, history when we are a kind of white evangelical protestant nation it's in the early 19th century but you know i think that's in that's because of the fact that the founders were not trying to create a christian nation that happens to be what happened historically right so evangelicals love to kind of appeal to this. Like we are a Christian nation. We're going to reclaim this. Um, so I think this historical question about what was the nature of the founding is really at the heart of all of this. You know, when I thought when I when I saw Trump got nominated, I'll be I'll be sort of a little self promoting here or kind of selfish here, right? I said, "Oh, there goes my book was America founded as a Christian nation because he's he's doesn't know anything about this. He's not going to talk about this like if Ted Cruz was elected, right? That's all he talks about. I was thinking, hey, people might buy my book. There'd be more chances to to get out there and try to correct the record." record um i really think trump uh, trump is is completely surprised me on this front well he you'll never hear him say we were founded as a christian nation um he clearly is giving support to all of these leading court evangelicals who are suggesting that we were founded as a christian nation so uh you know we need good history more than ever then you get to this make america great again i mean You know, I think I probably said this in one of my comments on a previous episode of this podcast. You know, as a historian, I tend to focus on the word again, not great, right? Tell me what you mean when, you know, tell me about a time when America was great. And then, you know, we can think about whether we want to go back there to that position, right? So I don't know. I mean, I don't. Trump has not, never to me, been entirely clear about the time when America was great. Was it the 1980s, the 1950s? You know, the Reagan era, the 1950s, the 1920s. Who knows? The breadth the founding, 19th century, whatever. So all I can go on is the times when he has referenced American history. And whenever he makes appeals and references to American history, they're always made to some of the darkest moments in our past. So he loves Andrew Jackson, right? Although he hasn't talked much about Jackson since Steve Bannon left. Mm -hmm. I think it was Bannon feeding him that. But, you know, here's a guy who... You know, you have the Trail of Tears, you have the Indian removal, you have somebody who was a populist in the kind of worst kind of white supremacy kind of way that you could be a populist. Or he talks about law and order, right? Any historian would immediately connect that with Nixon's 68 campaign and the attempt to uh, uh, oppress African-American protesters after the assassination of Martin Luther King, right? Or he talks about America first, right which is a direct appeal to uh Charles Lindbergh and the American First Committee which was uh largely uh, a movement to try to support Hitler right during during World War II and keep us isolated from the rest of the world so whenever Trump appeals to to the past it's to these darker darker moments and evangelicals you know, and here I'm drawing from the work of uh, one of my kind of informal mentors, Mark Knoll. You know, evangelicals have always had an anti-intellectual problem, problem with anti-intellectualism, and I think part of that problem with anti-intellectualism is the fact that they uh, don't spend a lot of time thinking about the past, studying history, and think about the way the past relates to the present. Right, I'm not talking here about a sort of you know I want Christians to be good on Jeopardy, right? With with Mm -hmm. trivia, I'm talking about historical thinking, right? The ways in which the past shapes the present and how the two speak to one another. Um, That's just one piece of American anti-intellectualism, but instead we tend to uh, we tend to always appeal to uh, nostalgia because it makes it makes us feel good, and nostalgia is ultimately a very very selfish way of understanding the world because what may feel good to us. Uh, or what gives us warm and fuzzy feelings about our past may not necessarily have been warm and fuzzy for other people who happen to be living through that same past. So of all people, I think evangelicals should be uh, people um, who are much more aware of the injustices. That have occurred in the past rather than to look back fondly on a world, a supposed Christian nation that tolerated all kinds of things, uh, whether it be slavery, uh, you know, better than me, Drew, whether it be uh, treatment of Native Americans, uh, you know, all of these uh, the nativism associated with immigration, you know, all of these kinds of things. uh, It's really, really hard for a Christian to be nostalgic about. A lot of the American past, and and that's what I'm trying to get at. I think oftentimes the support for Trump is built on this kind of nostalgia. We're afraid to move forward. We're afraid to move forward in hope, right? We're afraid to move forward in our faith, right? Instead, we want to try to reclaim something that's long past, and that forces us to always be looking backward rather than rather than uh, taking the ancient resources of our faith uh the ancient traditions of our faith that we embrace and use those to move forward instead of just constantly looking backward 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 that's not history history is always kind of analyzing the past as a way to move forward in the present
0: yeah it it, it strikes me that regardless of whatever donald trump might mean with that phrase make america great again it's it's its utility is in its capaciousness right and so so even though Trump might think this is a, you know, America was great when he didn't have so many regulators breathing right, down his right. neck. For the evangelical, it's that imagined nostalgia yeah, yeah. Uh, of a Christian past that may or may not have existed. But Absolutely. Because if you don't define what, when America was great, it can mean a whole lot of things. Absolutely. So final question here. We're almost out of time. But believe me, uh, is not just a historical explanation of why 81% of white evangelical voters pulled the lever for Donald Trump. But you are also challenging your fellow evangelicals to think differently about political engagement. And we've talked a lot on the pod- podcast, especially in the uh, this season four, about the specific ways in which evangelicals have engaged um, with with American
1: politics. Uh, what do you want your fellow evangelicals to take away from this book? Yeah, I won't go too much in depth on this question because I want you to get out there and get the book <laughs> and see how I unfold this Um I talk a little bit about uh, last summer, uh, and we had Todd Allen. Uh, some of you who are not patrons haven't heard the Todd Allen bonus episode. but we had Todd Allen in here. and I think I maybe even have done a commentary on uh, taking a civil rights tour this past summer. And one of the things that struck me is the deeply Christian um, sort of roots of much of the civil rights movement, especially in the earlier years, the King, the so-called King years. Um, In the mid to late fifties and, you know, maybe up until 1965, 66, um, you know, or maybe even up until King's death, you know, we could get into those interpretive debates. Um, but I noticed three things uh, and I was, I was kind of, kind of thinking through this book at that time. I hadn't even written a book proposal yet. But as I was on that tour, you know, obviously Trump had been in office for about five months by that point. It was in June of 2017. You know, I spent a lot of time on a bus driving around the South with my family and a bunch of other people, Um, you know, kind of just seeing all of these sites, listening to the veterans of the civil rights movement talk about their experience. And uh, what I sensed was uh, these people obviously had a lot to be afraid about. Right. And we don't even, I don't want to have to even ex- go into the details. Right. But they feared for their lives every day. But ultimately, the civil rights movement, as a, I think, as a deeply Christian movement, um, was a, was a movement of hope. Right. So, what would it take for us as evangelicals or as Christians in general to replace fear uh, with, with hope? Right. The idea that we can be confident in our faith, knowing, that our faith will have a kind of eschatological um, end point to it that we can put our faith in and trust in. Um, so, so I saw that every, in everybody I met on that civil rights tour. And I think, I think white evangelicals can learn a lot about hope from, um, from those uh, civil rights veterans. And I talk a little bit about that in the book. And then I've already alluded to this. I hope my fellow evangelicals will see the kind of vacuousness, emptiness of trying to pursue power, political power as a way of advancing the kingdom of God. Um, What would it take to replace power with uh, a spirit of humility, of servanthood, uh, and and these kinds of virtues as opposed to... um, constantly trying to reclaim the culture through government and through electoral politics so i hope that they hope humility and then you know i have to do this one drew i just in light of your last question too right i answered kind of already answered this but what would it take for christians to replace nostalgia with with just good history um and this fits into some of my own sort of vocational (laughs) callings right um, you know, what if we what if we came to the conclusion that the United States uh, was not founded as a Christian nation, or we see the problematic issues with that? How might that reshape how we think about politics? So, hope, uh, humility, and history. Um, you know, I'm not going to convince everyone in this book, but I'm really targeting my primary audience, audiences are evangelicals who maybe voted for Donald Trump. They may either a be regretting it or are open-minded enough to be convinced by what I hope is a good argument to say, well, maybe this wasn't the best thing to do for uh, the 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 most Christian way of engaging in public life. Um, so that's that's who I'm targeting, and that's what I hope um, primarily. That's who I hope to reach, uh, and that's one of the reasons why, frankly, I chose to publish this book with a Christian publisher. Uh, as opposed to a trade press which I had several literary agents who really wanted this book but I just felt they wanted to push me in a direction uh, that was going to kind of throw my evangelical brothers and sisters under the bus a little bit more than I wanted to Um, and I felt Erdman's was a great publisher and it's proven to be true uh, to kind of get the message out to the audience I want secondarily I hope that you know this will help people who are not a people of faith or not evangelicals kind of understand at least uh, the mentality of um, Trump evangelicals when they encounter them uh, in their daily lives. Well, we're out of time here. Um,
0: You've been listening to an interview with John Fia, our distinguished guest today. He's the author of this exciting new book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, just out with, erdman's publishing thanks for being on the show
1: let's do it again sometime <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well what do you think john i thought it was a great interview another is great guest? Where we, is this the part where we kind of hash it out how i john- thought it was phenomenal right who was that guy um how was my john fia impression that was good that was good that was good <laughs> <laughs> No, this was fun. Um, hopefully, we'll never have to do anything like this again. <laughs> um, I hope my hope the people at Erdman's, especially my publicist Rachel Brewer, who begged me to say you got to do a podcast for the book. I hope you're happy, Rachel, <laughs> um, if you're listening to this. Um, it's going to be a fun summer and fall going around. I put "fun" in quotes, maybe <laughs> uh, going around and trying to to spread this message uh, to. Um, Uh, to the people that I encounter at different bookstores and universities and colleges and churches around the, around the, well, really it's turning around, it's turning into around the country. We're not going too far West. I think the farthest West we go is actually Dallas, but um, in July we'll be doing a lot of bookstores um, in the kind of Eastern and Southeastern part of the United States. You know, we'll be in uh, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Louisville, Raleigh, uh, the Shenandoah Valley, Washington D.C., Baltimore. So it's 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 going to be a, a, a an interesting interesting experience. Maybe I'll write another book about the experience <laughs> of traveling around talking about Donald Trump.
0: Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to to be in the driver's seat for at least one episode. It was uh, you know nice to get my feet wet. And, anytime,
1: and... Drew. Anytime. You know.
0: So wait, wait. Which one of us has to do the tagline now?
1: Go ahead, take it.
0: Well, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Please go out, get this book. It's going to be a great, uh, a great, important read. Share it with your friends, and may your wave improvement always lead home. <laughs> this has been a production of the Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H Podcast podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, John Fia. Our studio producer, and we should note, his last time behind the glass for the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast right. before he heads off to his new job. Um, our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and also kind of your host. But our main host, our regular scheduled host, will be back next time. And that, of course, is John Fia.